Pastini is Eugene's new Italian bistro at Oakway Center, dedicated to serving up two of life's greatest pleasures, pasta and wine. Join them for classic favorites like spaghetti and meatballs, linguine with clams and sausage, and fettuccine Alfredo paired with hand-selected Pacific Northwest and Italian wines. Pastini. Eat pasta. Drink wine. Welcome to the Duck Pod. I'm Ryan Thorburn, joined by Austin Meek. This week's guest is Dave Williford, longtime SID slash assistant athletic director at Oregon, now retired. So we're going to find out where all the bodies are buried from Dave. Dave, thanks for coming on the podcast. How are you doing? How's life in retirement? Uh, it's good. I mean, in many respects, uh, you know, of course, it's been about 13, 14 months now, and uh, it was a much easier transition than I expected it to be, to be honest. And uh, it's one of those things, every day is Saturday. So it, uh, it, life is good. <laughs> so you arrived at Oregon in 1985, is that correct? That's correct. And I, I just looked back on that season. Obviously, it was Rich Brooks in football. I don't know. Did you do football right away? Um, I helped with football. That wasn't uh, my main uh, charge. Uh, did track and field, uh, some women's sports. The, it wasn't anything like what it is today. I mean, there was myself, one other assistant, and the director. So we had a total of three of us in the office. Um, a couple of years after that, we picked up some undergrad students. And, and today, uh, there are, if you count Rob Mosley, who's in the communications office, but isn't obviously is uh, his main charge is GoDucks.com. But if you count him, there are now seven people in the office. I think they have about four undergrad students. They have a graduate intern, and so certainly it's uh, it's grown as the athletic department has. Uh, tremendously since when I first arrived in 1985. So when I looked back at that season, they lost 63-0 to Nebraska at home, I believe. And, oh, yeah, oh, in Lincoln. Okay, that was in Lincoln. And then closed the season in Tokyo, 5-6 uh, and six with a loss at USC. What was the football program like in 1985? It was a time where we were just hoping to go 6-5. and five. I mean, you know, there were lots of seasons of – five and six, four and seven, thought if he could just go six and five and, you know, have a chance for a bowl game, uh, you know, that would, that would be utopia. Um, you mentioned that I forgot about that, the, the game in Tokyo. It was called the Mirage Bowl. <laughs> and it was aptly named, I have to say. Um, the USC uh, band went, and the Oregon band wasn't invited um, Grambling was the <laughs> band that represented Oregon because uh, the Japanese, really, the band and the pageantry was bigger to them than the football game itself. Mm-hmm. 
Well, Dave, I don't know if everybody knows this, but you and I both have some Kansas roots, uh, both long-suffering fans of the Kansas City Royals. I think we uh, we bonded a little bit early on when I moved here because that was right when the Royals were getting good and going to the World Series. Uh, and you were a University of Kansas graduate, is that correct? That's correct. Yeah. So tell me how uh, tell me how you went from the University of Kansas and uh, made the made the journey out here. Well, I I grew up in the Midwest. Um, uh, after graduating from Kansas, I went to a small school, uh, an NAIA Division II school in northeast Missouri called Culver Stockton. Hmm. It was on the Mississippi River, uh, about 30 miles from the Iowa border, uh, 700 students. I was the, uh, what I guess you refer to the sports information director, but also the assistant public relations director for the college and so uh, it was it was a lot of fun uh, with the exception of obviously sports was my passion and uh, having to balance that with attention to the psychology department and the fine arts department and that sort of thing and and uh, it just like it is most places obviously and it doesn't the priority doesn't make it right or wrong, but certainly attention being on athletics and and the other, the academic side, couldn't understand why they couldn't get the same amount of attention. And I say the same amount of attention. There were maybe two media people at a football game, mm-hmm. so uh, certainly a far cry from what it has developed into at Oregon. I was there for two years and then went to Drake University in Des Moines, Iowa for six mm-hmm. years. and and then uh, landed in Eugene, Oregon. A non-duck question, but I'm just curious, because the three of us have been lucky enough to be at Allen Fieldhouse uh, for basketball games, and it's the best. I mean, I, I've been to Duke. Granted, it was for women's basketball, and it was cool, but I've been to a lot of good basketball environments. Kansas is the best. Why is Kansas so good at basketball and so bad at football? <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't know what this is, you know, speaks about myself when i was there um in the mid 70s relatively speaking kansas basketball was down a little bit now they went to the ncaa tournament but it wasn't anything like it is now and the football team went to a couple of bowl games so uh prior to i'd say five six years ago um in the mid 70s was I wouldn't say a pinnacle, but it was a bright spot in Kansas football. So to answer your question, I don't know. It's just one of those things. Obviously, Kansas has had a tradition um, of success in basketball. I'm not sure now if they're number two or number three all-time wins, um, but just had that bloodline going and had very few coaches because coaches obviously stay there a long time. So, you know, it it was fun, uh, obviously, from a basketball standpoint, but it wasn't crazy like it is now. Hmm. Well, I always love sneaking some Kansas talk on the podcast, but since this is the Duck Pod, Dave, you, you basically saw the whole arc of Oregon football from what it was in the 80s to what it became under Chip Kelly. What, what do you think of as the point where it, it – really took off was it the rose bowl in 94 
Was it somewhere in the Bellotti years? Was it was it when Chip Kelly took over? What do you see as the point where Oregon football really took off on the trajectory to be what it is now? Well, I'd say it's tongue-in-cheek, obviously, but um, the dynamics obviously have changed so much, uh, not only college football in general, I mean, which has exploded into the business that it is. Um, and so... It was a lot of good fortune, certainly. And what I was going to say is, you know, those fans maybe that have just been aboard the last five, six, seven years, if you asked a lot of them, or some of them, they would think that Chip Kelly invented football at the University <laughs> of Oregon. Um, it goes back to Rich Brooks. And, you know, he was, it's been documented, uh, he was a longtime coach here and left here with a losing record. And it was a different time, certainly. Um, but what Oregon needed at that point was stability. I mean, and certainly everybody else was changing coaches every four or five years. And when Coach Brooks was hired, you know, the administration was aware that certainly from a facility standpoint and from a budget standpoint, he wasn't playing with an equal deck of cards compared to the rest. When he was hired, it was the Pac-8 and obviously developed into Pac-10. And so, 94, when we went to the Rose Bowl, um, you would have thought that was the pinnacle. You thought it could, can't get any better than that. And Mike Bellotti came in and certainly took it to the next level. And uh, I can't remember exactly where it started, but I mean, we literally would win eight eight games the next year nine the next year 10 the next year 11 and gradually built it up certainly to the point by the time that chip kelly took over you had the facilities you had the infrastructure in place and there's no doubt that chip kelly took it to a new level yet after that so i think i always think the the renaissance so to speak began with rich brooks and the chip at that uh Mike Bellotti didn't get the credit necessarily uh, that he deserves, I think, because it was his idea to evolve into the up-tempo offense, the spread offense, and, and hired Chip Kelly, and then obviously Chip took it from there. I happened to cover the 2001 Colorado Buffalo team that went to the Fiesta Bowl, uh, obviously got housed by Joey Harrington and company. Um, that was really an awesome season in college football when you look at it. Um, Colorado beat Nebraska 62-36 to and beat Texas in the Big 12 championship, which was essentially a road game. And in the BCS computer, they were so close to that number two spot, but they were number three, I think, three or four. Um, looking back, now it's obvious why they lost to Oregon. Oregon was terrific, and Colorado was still talking about, oh, we beat Nebraska, and they're playing for the championship, and that's all they were talking about. How great would that season have been with the college football playoff with Miami, Nebraska, Oregon, and Colorado? And then, you know, then everyone's kind of focused on winning a championship instead of the BCS computer. That's exactly right. And I think that I, you know, believe that it was a contributor to, you know, obviously the evolution to where we are now to establishing a playoff system. Um, Miami was so good. I mean, they were unbelievable. Um, and certainly not to take anything away from Colorado, but 
uh, I think we fared better um, playing in the Fiesta Bowl than what we would have had we gone to uh, the Rose Bowl and, and faced Miami because Miami was such a good team. Oregon finished the season second in the country. Um, and the funny thing about that game, um, and a lot of it, I guess you can pin back to coaches. Um, you know, there are always you know a lot of coaches, particularly as you get to game day. You know, think that you, you don't have a chance. You know, and and basis you alluded to. Um, I think Colorado what ran for like 600 yards or something against Nebraska. And so the day before the game, I can just remember Nick Aliotti saying, "We don't have a chance. They're gonna <laughs> they're gonna score a million, you know, type thing." And and uh, I think a lot of it, uh, the success was due because of obviously Harrington and the offense, and you know, built an early lead, and then the defense was able to force Colorado more or less into a one-dimensional game, and and uh, the rest is history. Your job, I'm sure, changed a lot in the time from when you started to when you retired. The media changed uh, a lot in that amount of time. What were your uh, What were your relationships like with with the coaches you worked with, and was there any one coach in particular that you had a really close relationship with? Well, it, it's a it's not an easy answer, and uh, you know, obviously. As I said before, I mean, a lot of it, I think, is due because just the game of college football changed. Um, unfortunately, I guess, um, I think a lot of it has been because of the money. Certainly, uh, it's it's a business, and athletic departments everywhere, I mean, rely on the success of football, certainly, to fund the entire department, and it, particularly at, at Oregon, Oregon State, you know, most of the schools in the, you know, Pac-12, I'd say all the schools. And so the relationship, I think, changed, and this isn't a knock on any coaches or administrators or whatever, but I, I always had the opinion, and I can't pinpoint when that was, but in terms of our relationship in the communications office, sports information office, whatever you call it, and the coaches, it literally turned from, I think, working with the coaches to working for the coaches. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and say that as far as administrators, too. Obviously, football coaches make more money than the athletic director. Yeah. So it's a little bit in terms of, um, I don't want to say a power struggle. I mean, because you just learned to work together. But certainly... Uh, because of the money, I think just the whole atmosphere in athletic departments has changed. Um, and it's not necessarily for the, all for the bad, but certainly a noticeable change. Um, favorite coaches, I mean, they all certainly had different personalities. Um, I didn't work as closely with Coach Brooks because I was an assistant in the communications office at the time. I worked football but wasn't the, the lead person in football uh, as I became then in the mid-90s. Mike Bellotti and Chip Kelly were were opposite ends of the spectrum, certainly. And again, that that's not meant to be bad necessarily. Uh, Mike was, I can't imagine, an easier person to work with uh, than Coach Bellotti. Um, and that's not to say that Chip Kelly wasn't, but certainly Chip had his own ideas, and 
and obviously one of the main one of my main roles I think uh, is to was to serve as a liaison between news media uh, the general public a little bit and coaches administrators and, and athletes um, and so from that standpoint I would say that that Mike was easier to work with um, but I really enjoyed Chip Kelly just because you always knew where he stood. I mean, to say you may not always agree with him, but there was, you know, there was no gray area. It was kind of black and white. And I, I got along with him. I like to think I got along with him very well uh, and enjoyed the time. But it was just different, certainly. And, uh, again, that doesn't make one better than the other. It was just different. What is Chip Kelly like when he doesn't have to be drug out in front of a microphone? What's he like <laughs> behind the scenes just as a guy? Um, Chip was a private person. I mean, and so I'm not really sure that too many people really n knew who is Chip Kelly outside of football. I mean, I think in a, in a uh, interview that the L.A. Times uh, did a three-part series, the start of the fall camp uh, I was interested to, to read they interviewed a number of people I was one of them interviewed Mike Bellotti and even coach Bellotti said you know really outside of football he didn't know Chip Kelly and at that time obviously Mike was the, the head coach he hired Chip as the offensive coordinator and then uh, once Chip became the head coach Mike was the athletic director for a year so I guess I was a little bit surprised, although that was just that was Chip's nature. I mean, he was a private person, and uh, uh, I don't think let too many people, I guess, in the inner circle. I think Mark Helfrich has a great personality and is is a really good person. But that's when I came here in 2013, and I had known him when he was assistant at right. Colorado. Do you think he tried to be too much like Chip in terms of let's do everything the exact same way instead of just being himself? I think that maybe from a public standpoint um, hurt him a little bit. Um, he was, he was a, and still is a, uh, I think, a brilliant mind as far as football. Um, Mark was a, a graduate assistant here at Oregon under Mike Bellotti, I think in 97. Um, it was a very short time. Um, and you could tell then that this is somebody who has a lot on the ball. And so he was certainly a, a tremendous uh, football uh, mind. Um, and sort of there's no question, obviously, he was, he was an outstanding coach. I think possibly, I mean, it's a saying, that's maybe one of the detriments in terms of when you pass over, you know, pass a program down to assistance in terms of maybe sometimes it inhibits the successor from being his own person. Um, and I also think, though, that, uh, and I, you know, th all the assistant coaches under Mark were really great. Um, I just think maybe uh, Mark didn't benefit from some of the off-field um, 
coaches I mean, in terms of uh, contributions they, that uh, Chip had with his assistant coaches, Mike Bellotti had with his assistant coaches. And it's kind of odd because a lot of those assistants were the same assistant coaches, but there were a few missing pieces that I think that Mark would have maybe benefited from had he had access to some of the the council and that sort of thing that, that Mike and Chip benefited from. Hmm. You know, you referenced how the dynamic has changed between the football coach and the SID, and I, it, it's also interesting to me how the dynamic has changed between uh, the media and, and the programs that they cover. And I've only been doing this 10 or 12 years, um, so I, I maybe I have kind of an idealized picture of how things used to be before I was doing it. But uh, it, it seems like maybe there was a time when um, the two sides were – maybe a little more on even footing in terms of the balance of power and maybe that made the SID's job a little easier um, versus now where it's you know it's as you mentioned with the salaries being what they are and and everything that goes into college athletics you know it feels like there's a pretty big um, pretty big gap between uh, the the coaches and then the people who cover the team in terms of the power that you have to kind of shape shape the coverage of the team and whatnot. Um, did you sense that dynamic evolve uh, as as you did the job? Was it a hard job to be the man in the middle of that? Because I'm sure that you catch it from both sides when the media is not happy about something uh, and you catch it from the coach when the coach isn't happy. So what's it like to be in the middle of that and see that evolve? I always kind of viewed the relationship or I should say the role of a uh, sports information director is an umpire i mean it's to say you're you're never gonna make everybody happy and you're kind of in the middle um i always felt it was my job certainly to facilitate the best i could um relations interactions between again as i said the news media administrators coaches athletes um I was looking for you to maybe use reference to. It seems like there's a line drawn between two sides. <laughs> kind of feels I mean, that you, way, yeah. you hesitated and didn't quite say that, but <laughs> you're right. I mean, and, and that's unfortunate. No, when I uh, I got into this business in 1977, and granted, on a much lower scale, and even then, my second stop at Drake. Um, Drake at the time was a Division One school in name only. I mean, there was really no comparison in terms of resources and even scholarships, um, say, between Drake and Iowa or Iowa State even. Um, but even at that time, and when I first, you know, it's hard to pinpoint when did that shift occur, and, and I don't know. But there would be times, certainly, in the early years, much more frequent um, that a coach would go out to lunch with a news media member or even a sports information director would go out to lunch. Um, you know, there was it was just a more, I guess, congenial um, group in terms of between coaches and, and news media or administrators and news media. And why that changed, I don't know. I always kind of uh, reference it a little bit, although that was early on um, before I got into the business. But, you know, um, I guess kind of the Watergate effect in terms yeah. of, of where there was a, a change um, between, 
I hate to say trust, but I think a lot of it came down to trust on both sides. I mean, in terms of well, the news media could, you know, I think question maybe, okay, am I getting the truth? And uh, coaches, the other side, administrators thinking, okay, is such and such going to give me a fair shake? Mm-hmm. You know, if I'm open and honest. Um, used to be you could, uh, I think, conversations. I mean, you didn't have to worry about so much what was off the record and things like that. Where today, I think both sides, you know, in a conversation, I think sometimes question, okay, as I said before, okay, is he really telling me what he thinks? I mean, you could say that on both sides. And it's unfortunate because it has made the job more difficult from my standpoint. And and just, I think college athletics, not as much fun yeah. as maybe as what it once was. Yeah. And I'm also guessing a lot of it has to do with just the proliferation of media. I mean, I don't know how many people were in the press box for a game at Autzen Stadium back in the 80s, but I'm guessing you had you know, the Register Guard and the Oregonian and some local TVs and radios and whatnot. But uh, yeah, just with the proliferation of media outlets now with, with the Internet and um, – yeah, just you, there's a lot of people in that press conference, and it's probably hard for the coach to really feel like he's got a relationship with any of those people now anymore. I have a hard time with that too. I will admit. I mean, in terms of, and I think with the advent of the internet, um, things like that, the whole media, as you referred to, uh, has changed a lot. I mean, as as you allude to, I mean, uh, I don't know that there were. There were fewer people in the press box. I can remember when I first came here, the press box, and this is the the current press box now, which is on the south side of the stadium atop the Sky Suites. It's much larger than what it was uh, when I first came. It's actually the third press box that's been at Autzen Stadium since I first arrived. And so um, you would have a time, obviously, and and I mentioned finances or – or salaries of coaches and obviously a lot of that has changed too on the media side where it used to be where you know we would on a regular basis the newspaper from Roseburg Grants Pass Klamath Falls hmm. you know smaller Oregon towns but they would always come and cover the games obviously their budgets have been cut their staffs have been cut and so they have to concentrate which they should I think on on you know local high school events and that sort of thing so you don't have um, on a regular basis as many of of uh, media covering throughout the state Um, but to replace those as I said before you've got internet um, bloggers and people again I as I said before I had a tough time kind of accepting that transition are they really news media are they taking away are they making the job of of as I referred to, and uh, you know, traditional news media are they are they, uh, you know, the competition is it hurting that? And I think that the internet changed things such where, because I can remember it used to be uh, there would be something posted on online, and you'd have a, a newspaper or even a TV station call and say, hey, "I read such and such. Is this true?" And now, because of the competition. I think, uh, you know, instead of calling and asking if this is true, they're assuming it is, and everybody's kind of reporting the same thing or in a race to see who can get it first. 
Well, we we need to get some hits on this thing. So, give us some <laughs> give us some dirt on Marcus Mariota. <laughs> um, this well, guy is too good to be true. What was he like? What was it like to to be with him at, at the Heisman Trophy? Um, Marcus was a complex person um, from a standpoint of, and and I I don't pin this on Marcus, um, but you have to understand. Uh, high-profile athletes, um, they receive a lot of requests, be it from fans, be it from media, and that sort of thing. And so dealing with the news media wasn't Marcus's favorite activity. (laughs) Shocked. (laughs) Shocked to hear that. But I will will say, and, you know, there were... But he did it. uh, He did it. And there were other athletes that weren't quite as accommodating, you know, um, and Marcus was always—he would always be, you know, upfront with you. You know, I really don't want to do this. And when Marcus had, you know, that idea in mind that he didn't really want to do it, you knew your chances probably weren't very good because he, he didn't often sway from that. But I will say to, to Marcus's credit, and I shouldn't, you know, tell these stories about other athletes. But um, there was an athlete, a quarterback, Bill Musgrave. And Colorado kid, obviously. Um, And he was notorious. He didn't like to do talk to news media either. And uh, it's a time when Oregon practiced across the street from Martin Luther King. Uh, There's a field right now. I think it's, um, I'm not sure if it's owned by or Cerebu or, Mm -hmm. but, you know, obviously other activities across the street. But that's where Oregon would practice. And I always used to say, you know, because the players had to cross the street, and you could always tell whether Oregon had a good week or a bad week because it seemed like as the players were going across the street, the cars would speed up if they they didn't like the outcome of uh, the previous Saturday's game. Anyway, uh, I digress a little bit, but on the west end of that field, and I think the trees are still there. There were some juniper trees. um, And uh, anyway... Uh, player interviews were always before practice, which, uh, and so Bill, and I won't say on a regular occasion, but more than once, he would go across the street uh, to practice, and most of the players entered at the east end of this field. He would kind of, you know, make his way uh, to the west end, and hide behind those juniper trees until you know the whistle would blow for the start of practice, and you're looking around, and you know where's where's Bill, and then he would appear, and then by that time it was too late to do interviews. So uh, I I just point that out, and and uh, I enjoyed working with Bill a lot, uh, and uh, so just as a comparison, in terms of Marcus wasn't the only athlete maybe who who. I wouldn't say he didn't embrace the media because he knew it was an obligation that he had, but there were just some days, as we all have, that maybe we just don't feel like doing something. And, you know, uh, it would it would be uh, – you'd have to coerce, I guess, Marcus maybe to, to do a an occasional media interview. Were there some guys that were too good at being quoted that coaches said, hey, listen, you got to – this guy can't talk anymore. He's too good. For a long, you know, those long-time Oregon followers, I say long time, I guess it wasn't that long ago, but um, 
I believe it would have been. I'm trying. I, I lose. It's hard to put you know things in perspective in terms of when this player played or whatever. But Keith Lewis is a defensive back that most Oregon fans are, I think, uh, um, or longtime fans anyway, are acquainted most with. Most DBs are talkers. That's it, true. He he was a talker, and. Um, it always seemed to come up when Oregon was playing Washington. <laughs> and obviously, you know, in those days, we're talking the late 90s, and uh, it was – Washington was tough enough. I mean, much like that they are now, um, you know, uh, without providing bulletin board material. <laughs> so I can't remember. I was trying to remember today what it was that he said, but certainly it wasn't complimentary <laughs> and and – it's the only player I can recall. I think there are probably others, but specifically Mike Bellotti said, no, he's not available to the news media. <laughs> and ironically, and, and I can't remember the player for Washington, but you, know, you fast forward, um, Heath was drafted uh, by San Francisco. And as rookies, at least in camp, he happened. Keith Lewis happened to be the roommate for this one Washington player that they that he lots of times would target with his verbal uh, jabs, and I guess got along great. You know, it's one of those things when you're on the uh, on the same team, uh, your 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 opinions change and whatever. And it's ironic because just the other day. Uh, I saw a picture with Mike Bellotti and Keith Lewis together. <laughs> I mean, you know, obviously you fast forward and everybody, you know, hopefully matures and changes, you know, 20 years later. And it, it was just so ironic to see that picture with big smiles on their <laughs> face and, and that sort of thing. So, Well, Dave, we could probably keep you here all day, but we appreciate you taking time out of your busy social schedule to stop by and it's great seeing you in the press box on saturdays is the sid emeritus and uh let's let's get the royals turned around let's let's get them back on the right track i don't think it's going to happen this year or next year (laughs) but uh it's one of those things i i grew up in kansas city and i can remember i went to the first game uh that they ever played i went to the first game and what is now Kaufman Stadium, mm-hmm. and so it's uh, you have to take the good with the bad. And my memories growing up, there were a lot more good yeah. than bad, and it's kind of switched around right now. So we have to take solace into those rare occasions, like uh, what was it, uh, you know, fourteen and 14, fifteen, fifteen, yeah, you know, where uh, chance to to be deep, be proud and, and uh, that sort of thing. But uh, it's still my favorite baseball team, so. All right. Well, hey, thanks again, Dave. We appreciate it. This was fun. Thank you. Thanks, Dave. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Duck Pod. Be sure to subscribe on iTunes or wherever you find your podcasts.